Before I open it up for questions, there is an entire sub-point that got cut out um, that I want to follow through quickly. Quickly. And that is... Um, I mentioned how Jesus is saying to the crowd that they deserve towers to fall on them and worse. Jesus, I believe, knows what's coming in 70 AD to the Jerusalem, right? Do you guys know what happened in 70 AD? Um, the temple is torn apart stone by stone, but not only that, under their Roman leader Titus, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews were crucified in a persecution and a... Um, death toll that would make the Tower of Siloam and what Pilate did negligible. So there's a very real sense in which something far worse than the fate of these Galileans is about 30 years off for the Jesus audience. Um, and so Jesus is dealing with Israel. If you turn to, turn to Isaiah 5, I had mentioned, we didn't have time to look at, but I'd mentioned that um, this picture of Israel as a fruit-bearing vine or tree is, is, is common in the Old Testament. And Jesus uses a fig tree, and here we're going to see it's a grapevine, but it's, it's a common enough picture for Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared the stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so I, I think that the Jews of Jesus' day would track the metaphor Jesus is using, comparing them to a, a fig tree planted in a vineyard. Um, if you go back to Luke 13, I'd mentioned, and I didn't develop either in the message, that there's an implication that he wants to cut down the tree to plant another. And I think that that is seen in um, the end of verse 7. Why should it use up the ground? If you've got a vineyard, this is a vineyard owner who's concerned with maximizing the ground that he set aside for his vineyard. And so the whole point of cutting the tree down is what? To make room for something else. And this is something that Jesus develops more clearly a little later in Luke. In fact, if you would turn now to Luke chapter 20. This is the beginning. This, this par the reason what I'm pointing out is this, this parable is the beginning of Jesus developing a theme of God rejecting Israel because they've rejected him. Okay? So in um, Luke chapter 20, we'll pick it up in verse 9, and it's a similar-sounding parable, but the judgment becomes all the more clear in it. He began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard, and let it out to tenants. Now here, Israel, the tenants, they're not the vineyard. A man planted a vineyard, let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenant so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, because they will respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. And they're saying surely not because they get what he's saying. If they're not, in the, in the context of the story, it makes perfect sense. You wouldn't go surely not. If, if you were renting out your property to somebody and they killed your child, your son, no one's going to go surely not when you kick them off. But they get that what he's saying is, Israel should have been giving to God this fruit, and they haven't. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them and warn them. And he sends his son, and they kill his son. And when they finally kill his son, that rejection, they're done. They're done. You want to know why the, the judgment in 780 happened? Turn to Matthew chapter 21. In probably the clearest terms. Matthew twenty one forty three. And this is what Jesus says in his in, in Matthew's version of that same parable we just read. You can see it's at the head of the same parable we just read, but Matthew adds this extra piece in to make it even clearer what Jesus is saying. Look at forty forty three. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people, what? Producing its fruits. So, what happened at, in, in Israel's rejection of Jesus was that God has now assigned Israel to judgment for a time. And the gospel now, as a result, has turned to the Gentiles, turned to us. Um, so, this warning that Jesus gave them that the tree would be cut down was fulfilled. The tree, the tree was cut down. Israel was dispersed under judgment. But go to Romans 11, because that's not the end of the story. Um, this, all of this theme has just begun to be introduced into Luke 13. And Jesus and Luke will develop it further. But I just want to tease it out a little further before we open it up to questions. Um, because Paul helps us make sense of this. Because the temptation for us is to sit here on the sidelines and say, those stupid Jews, stupid Israel. And yet Paul will, on the one hand, recognize what happened to Israel and then give us a warning. And I want us to hear the warning. Because Jesus warned them that the owner of the vineyards wants to cut you down, but mercy is holding him back. He's going to give you another year. Not only another year, but another year with, with, with the, the best um, manure and, and, and cultivation possible so that when the tree fails to bear fruit, there can be no excuse that it's any fault other than the tree. So, Paul says this. Um, pick it up in verse 15. I'll pick it up in 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection 
means the reconciliation of the world, what their acceptance means, but life from the dead. What Paul's saying is this. Because Israel rejected their Messiah, and consequently God nationally rejected them, what was the result of that? The gospel going out to the, the Gentiles. So if their rejection, get this, means the reconciliation of the world, how much more, what will their acceptance mean with life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And now he'll use this cutting off metaphor that Jesus introduced in Luke 13. If some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive trees, and that's what happened. The, the Jewish branches got cut off. Israel, um, until the 1940s, was scattered. They had no land. They had no temple. They still have no temple, no sacrificial system, and they abide under God's judgment. As, as God is working with and the gospel is going out largely to the Gentiles. So those branches were cut off and we get grafted into the promises of Abraham. We get pro- grafted in to the Abrahamic covenant. What's the warning for us in 18? Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Remember, it's a Jewish Messiah who's saving us and it's Jewish promises that are saving us. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. You must be very important. They are broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So the warning to get from this is God warned Israel, and God was patient with Israel, and he gave them super abundant grace. The tree should have been cut down long ago. They got another year. They get the Messiah. But despite all that kindness and patience, he eventually did cut them off, and he grafted us in. The warning is, if God did that to his covenant people Israel, you think he's going to hesitate when we start being unfaithful to do something similar to us? That's the warning. Um, not that any individual Gentile is going to be cut off and lose their salvation, but, but the point is, don't presume upon God's grace. And so when we stand on the sidelines and watch Jesus warn these Jews, beware, hurry up, judgment's coming, act quickly. If we got sin in our life, if we got business to deal with God, we should use the same alacrity, swiftness, speed to, 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 to settle with our accuser and with God. Anyway, that was the, that was the thread that got cut out in, in process during the sermon I wanted to finish. Now, questions on that or anything else from this morning? Steve, I know you got questions. We need a mic. We need a mic. Get a microphone. Oh, microphone. We got rules, Stephen. Oh, oh, while we're past the microphone, my friend Chris, who listens to the podcast I mentioned periodically, is not the Chris that I mentioned last week. One of my charismatic friends, and and he wanted to make that clear, and I promised him I would. I promised him I would. So, um, my friend, everyone, everyone, say hi to Chris real fast. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Okay, wonderful. 
Um, that is not my friend Ron and Chris. Chris. That Ron and Chris is short for Christine. It's actually a woman. Um, so anyway, just one. I promised him that I would declare. He's like, that was a good story, and now everyone's going to think I'm that person who speaks in tongues. Like, nope, I'll fix that, Chris. Okay. Stephen. You made Steve. a statement. Yes. God has a purpose in moral and natural evil. Yes. Now, when most people think of moral, uh, I think they're going to have a problem with this. Sure. What is your definition of moral, first of all? That moral would be, and let me use the moral evil category first. Some things we view as evil because they harm us, like a, like a tower falling. That tower in no way is obligatory to God, has no way thwarted God, is in no way inviting God's wrath. Moral is the category by which persons invite God's pleasure or displeasure. Moral is, is when creatures, and us and angels, as far as I can tell, are the only created beings who are moral beings to whom judgment and praise can be rendered. Um, moral would be acting within that sphere in that category where God will either reward and praise or will judge and damn. Um, so moral evil is evil which is um, going to bring judgment. Evil that is going to be, the scales must be balanced by God in a way that there doesn't need to be a balancing for the Tower of Siloam that fell. Who's going to pay for that? That that doesn't require, justice doesn't require payment for that. What Pilate did does require payment. Um, and either Pilate will pay for his sin or Christ will pay for Pilate's sin. But Christ doesn't die on the cross for Towers of Siloam that fall. Does that distinction make sense? So I mean, my moral is that category that is before God that invites or deserves his praise or judgment. That's the distinction between moral and natural evil. Whereas sickness doesn't, God doesn't have to punish sickness. God doesn't have to atone for what sickness does. Does that make sense? From our perspective, it's death and it's suffering. So we look at them very similarly. But from God's perspective, one is defying him. The other is not. The reason I ask you that is because I use moral and ethics in my leadership mm. class. Mm. And I use moral, I, of course, being in a public school, got to be careful about the terms yeah. they use. And I want to make sure that I can incorporate yeah. kind of what you're saying morally in with my definition of it. Right. Right. Well, let me go to Genesis 50, 20. Um, and this is one of the clearest passages I can see. And we could, I mean, if you guys want an... I, I won't go down the full rabbit trail unless you want to. Uh, if, if this is a topic that um, you want to look at again, the first message in our series on four-week series on the sovereignty of God and, and, and um, an election dealt with the sovereignty of God over all things. And specifically, as we zeroed in, we dealt with human moral evil. We have a whole message. There's a PowerPoint online you can download. But Genesis 50.20 is probably one passage that's as clear as any to point this out. And here, um, Jacob has died, Joseph's father, and Joseph's brothers are concerned that perhaps Joseph's um, leniency, Joseph's clemency, was simply tied to good old dad being alive. And now that dad's dead, Joseph may have a change of heart, and Joseph may whoop up on them and, and wreak his vengeance upon them. And so they come to him in trembling, and they remind him... Um, um, let's go back. Verse 15. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. By the way, what evil did Joseph's brothers do to him? They kidnapped him, they faked his death, and they sold him into slavery. Pretty significant, that's pretty significant evil. Okay? Um, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, I get this, he's, <laughs> they didn't go in person, they sent a message. Your father gave this command, dad said, remember dad said, please saying to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgressions of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came. So they sent the, the forward messenger party, and then they come and sort of grovel at his feet. Because remember, Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt. At his word, they're put to death. Um, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And I get this here. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And here's where grammar is important. What it does not say is you meant it for evil, God turned it for good. You meant it for evil, God worked it for good. As if you did it and then God responded. What you've got is a parallel verb. You meant, God meant. And you're going to be really hard-pressed from any sort of interpretive perspective, to argue that you meant and God meant mean different things when they're put parallel together in one verse. So we, so let's work from the easier to the harder. What does it mean that Joseph's brothers meant evil? Well, what, here's what it means. It means they planned, they purposed ahead of time. It wasn't something they did in the moment. They, this was a plan and a purpose. They meant to do it. They intended to do it. That's what it means, that his brothers meant evil. What does it mean that God meant evil? For good. This is part of God's plan. This is part of God's purpose. And Joseph tells us what the purpose was. God intended and meant for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery so that Joseph could get in the right position and save millions and millions of people in that area of the world. And it's a good reason. And it does, and God meaning that in no way nullifies the brother's evil. He's able to say, you meant evil for me. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. And so the whole purpose of what we're talking about is what we see is divine sovereignty and human responsibility not nullifying each other. We want to say it's either or. Either I did it or God did it. And passages like this say it's both. There's a philosophical name for this. It's called um, compatibilism. Is a theological category, concurrence. But it's basically the notion that you can have two agents causing something, God and the human agent, and neither one nullifies the other. And we're hardwired to say, well, if God did it, then I didn't, or if I did it, then God didn't. And I can show you about a dozen or so passages like this where God has ascribed agency and the, the human has ascribed agency. Um, so I can go further down that if we need to go down that, but that's the basic point. And so let's take that to 9-11. God planned and had a purpose in it in a way that no way nullifies the culpability of the terrorists and the evil that they did that will be judged. Um, it's the same thing. I would say God, they meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And whatever God meant it for, it's good. Even if the goodness is to wake a country up and cause us to think through difficult topics and look death and evil square in the face. 
to the degree that we did that, even for a couple weeks, that was good. Okay. Um, we need to keep going there. Do you want to go somewhere else? Or do you have more questions, Stephen? Steve, you're Stephen. Okay, I always go back and forth here. Dan, microphone for Dan Barth. He's a what? He's a what? He's a music. Sorry. And what happened to us in 9-11, just like Israel, we've already forgotten about it quickly. Yep. You know, it's just human nature, I guess. Yeah. No, ab absolutely, absolutely. We don't really like to think about the things like, hey, we're going to die. You know, the, the analogy I use, um, I have some experience with drinking a lot because when I was young, back in my early 20s, I drank a lot. And you don't like to think of the consequences of your actions. So you'll spend your money and you'll spend the rent money and you'll, you know, and, and it, but you, because you've committed to doing it, why on earth would you want to spend any time thinking about the consequences? I'll face those when I face those. I think in many respects, because of our rebellion and sinfulness, we deep down inside no judgment's coming. We deep down inside no death's coming. But why on earth would we want to ruin our time now thinking about that? And so I think we're all naturally hardwired not to consider those things, not to want to look at them. And so really a funeral or a national tragedy or an ISIS beheading are one of the few things that will slap us in the face and make us up and make us think about those things when normally we're just going to go merrily on our way to hell. Um, and, you know, which is why Ecclesiastes tells us that the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning. Fools are in the heart of place of mirth. Um, so... Yeah, absolutely. It's, we're, we're, it's ingrained in every one of us not to want to think about those things, apart from God's grace. Anybody else? Oh. Wanda Cowan. Well, I was kind of contemplating this the other day for some reason, and so you probably answered this on one of the sermons I missed mm. on the sovereignty of God, but okay, so say a Christian young college girl gets raped and killed. Yeah. Can you say... I don't, th I don't know if I'm quoting the verse right, that God turns, maybe I've got the wrong, um, all things to good according to those that are called his purpose. Can you, okay, go, to, go there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let me, and let me pause by saying um, up front that thinking through these things and how you would actually talk to a real-life flesh-and-blood person are two different things. That's the first thing I want to qualify, that we're going to talk about this, and if I had that person in front of me, I would want to do a lot of comforting and praying and weeping with those who weep. There isn't a real flesh and blood person in front of me, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking with that right now. And so you risk sounding cold or callous. I want to make it clear. With a real person, you, you minister to them. But okay. Um, you quoted Romans 8.28, which doesn't say God turns, but God is working. God works, causes all things to work together for good. So then we got a factor in a rape. God, can God work a rape for good? I think biblically he has to. That's not to say I know how. Let's start there. If God is working all things together for good, go to Romans 8. And the reason why I want to say that is because in Romans 8, Paul has in view all types of evil. Okay? Um, I don't think he mentions rape per se, but I think he does reference all sorts of evil. Um, so Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
all things, not most things, not a lot of things, all things. And then you're going to start plugging in. So that means the rape. That means the Holocaust. That means the cancer. That means the bankruptcy. That means the unemployment. That Yes, all things. Um, but let's keep going um, to verse 31. Skip down to verse 31. Um, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it who condemns Christ Jesus? Is one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Now, Paul has just said all things are working together for good, and yet here he brings into view all these following things that can happen to us. So Paul saying God is working all things together for good does not exclude tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In the context of Romans 8, God is working all things together for good, including tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and sword. Then he quotes from Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. So God can use the martyrdom of his Christians for good. So in the immediate context for Romans 8, God working all things together for good deals with and stares square in the face martyrdom, persecution, nakedness, distress, and sword. So even though it doesn't mention rape, Yes, I think that fits in there. Um, So how does that work? What does that look like? And here's where I... It's hard without flesh and blood cases. What are the types of things God do for good? Um, I can just look at situations of evil I've seen around me, things like that. I know, first off, that God can use evil to bring people to him whether it's uh, the person herself who all of a sudden is facing evil in the world. I mean, if I were talking to that person, they weren't a Christian, here's what I'd say. You've been horribly wronged. You've been horribly violated. And I'd want to make it clear, only a Christian worldview can give you grounds to feel the outrage. Because if we're just animals, I mean, dude, I watch dogs in the park. Like, rape is taking place all the time that way, right? If we're just animals, what grounds do you have for feeling outrage Grounds do you have for feeling violated? If they're just biochemical machines doing what they're hardwired to do. No, only as Christian worldview can I ground and give you the ground to say you ought to feel wronged. You, it is right for you to cry out for justice. Let me show you where the Psalms, where people cry out, oh Lord, vindicate us, right? So I can, Christian worldview can give you that. And God hates death and sin so much. Let me tell you what he did to bring it to an end in Jesus Christ. So God can use things like this to bring people to himself. If this is somebody who knows Christ, um, go to go to 2 Corinthians 1. And I'm just guessing. I mean, because what what the scripture says is God will do good. And so I can't tell you specifically what good he's doing. And I'd want to spend time with the flesh and blood person looking into that. But Here's a general principle as well. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Maybe perhaps the reason someone went through something as terrible as that might be to equip them some later point in their life to minister and give compassion to someone else's suffering. That's another thing God could be doing. And again, I'm not saying that's the thing he's doing. I'm just showing you some of the things God can do through, through 
through terrible, terrible events. Um, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So that'd be another point. You are, to the degree that you are mistreated, to the degree that you're taken advantage of, you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. You are, your Savior was abused, mistreated, betrayed, and he sympathizes. And to some degree, to the degree that we share in that, we, we can identify with him and his sufferings. I'm not that that's going to give, in the moment, a ton of comfort to somebody, but I think that's the type of truth that in time will eventually get some weight to it. Um, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which we experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings. Um, and I could take you to First um, Peter, where he talks about how the testing of our faith is meant to refine and, and purify us, that through intense suffering, we are forced to rely on God in ways we, we never have before. I, the closest I can think of for my own life would be my dad's death. I just know that there's never been a time in my life when I've been more forced to cast myself upon the Lord, knowing I can't sustain myself, than when you're going through a tragedy. And God proved faithful. I learned through that, through experience, God is faithful and God is good. Maybe that's some of the good God is working. I could go on with ideas. But th- those are the types of things. But, but, but I wouldn't just show up. And the, one of the reasons why I want to teach this stuff now is because to try to teach this God's sovereignty while someone's in the whirlwind is got to be a terrible thing. I'd rather, I'd rather think it's an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Get, get this type of stuff in concept format in people's heads before they hit the whirlwind. Um, then rather, I, I probably wouldn't even try to get into God's sovereignty in the midst of it. I mean, I just want to weep with them and work with them and comfort them and p- show them all the things the scripture says about how God amends their anguish and their pain and their, their, their feeling of, of being wronged. That there's a lot of scripture to back that up. There's a lot of scripture that says, amen. Now, take that and direct it to Christ. Take that and take that to God and you'll be able to do with it. But, um, I, I probably wouldn't jump in and be like, let me tell you about how God's sovereign and runs all things. Probably wouldn't start there uh, <laughs> pastorally, but since yeah. you bring it up, yeah. But yeah, but yeah. okay. No, but, well, I have a friend whose yeah. son just died, and she's just beyond distraught, which who in the world wouldn't be? And I thought about giving her the verse, God um, collects your tears in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yes. Okay. Just want to make sure I wouldn't take that psalm out of context. Psalm what? It's a psalm. Oh, I wrote oh, it down. I don't okay. remember. My brain doesn't remember. But okay, thanks. Yeah. In fact, go to Revelation. I'm going to show you one of my, my friend Chris, not Christine, my friend Chris, um, who's planning on moving out here, by the way. So one, eventually one of these months, he and his wife will show up and you'll be like, oh, you're Chris. Um, and then no one will listen to the, and then no one will listen to the pod. What? We're not like you thought. Exactly. Um, but go to Revelation. This is one of his favorite passages. Um, which ties in just with what you said. It's Revelation chapter... Hold on. Um, I got underlined. This is my new Bible. I'm still finding my way around here. Um, Nope, nope. There it is, eight. Okay. God saving up our tears. God saving up our prayers. So in Revelation, already, we've seen in chapter 6, the souls unto the altar crying out for blood. 
the vindication of their blood, right? Um, verse 10 of chapter 6, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God has a number of martyrs. That means God has a plan and a purpose in the martyrdom of every one of his children who's ever to be martyred. There's a number. It's not full yet, guys, so wait a little longer. But in chapter 8, the waiting is done. Look at this. Then the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints and the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. God's people have been crying, avenge us, avenge us, vindicate us, help us, deliver us from our enemies. And God stores them up and God stores them up like incense. And what does he do? He lights it on fire. And we're meant to see the very plagues and destruction that come in the trumpets that follow is being fueled and sent on the wings of the prayers of the saints. God takes this censer that's now burning of prayer and just casts it on the earth. Yeah. He's saving up our tears in the bottle. He's saving up our prayers for vindication as well for this. And my friend Chris finds comfort in that because he struggled in life and just dealt with, you know, has not found, you know, life easy. And knowing that even as now he sees apparent injustice and even now as he sees wrongs not righted, knowing that there will be a day where the scales are balanced, knowing that God is not losing track of our prayers, but he's storing them up and that he will vindicate his people. He will vindicate his righteousness. Right will be done on the earth um, is, is a comforting thing. I was listening to uh, Tim Keller talk about how a, a man in his church grew up in the killing fields of Cambodia, and he said... The doctrine of hell is the only real reason he's able to forgive people. Because he's seen such horror in Cambodia that only through an absolute confidence that justice will be done, only with God saying, hey, I got it, I will take care of this. And he then let it go. Since God has said he'll take care of it, despite the horrors I've seen, I can forgive you. Because I have a strong confidence God will deal with it. So I'm not tempted to deal with it myself, right? Um, that was a profound point that Tim Keller made. I mean, that the doctrine of hell is enabling this guy to forgive. Because otherwise, what's the temptation? I'm not going to let you get away with it. But if you're really confident, no, God will judge in righteousness, then I can let it go and I can be mistreated because he's going to set the record straight. Okay. Um, other thoughts, questions, complaints? Heavy stuff. Oh, no, 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 hold on, hold on, microphone, microphone. For posterity. Would you care to fold Jeremiah 2.13 on that aspect of evil when we make choices not to pursue the Lord? I gotta go see what Jeremiah 2.13 says before I can give an answer. 
I suspect I will. Jeremiah 2.13. Um, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Um, I'm not sure where you're going, so I'll tell you where I'm going, and then if it's not where you're going, you can, you can jump in. But to, to me, again, we don't see why sin is sinful. We generally only see sin and recognize evil when it hurts other people like us. So we get how rape's bad, and we get how murder's bad, and we get how theft is bad, and we get how slander's bad, because it hurts people like me. We wrestle a whole lot more with how pride is bad, how loving the world is bad, because we don't see a whole lot of victims. The effrontery of sin is first and foremost this analogy. God has offered us, he's pictured himself as a a fountain of living, fresh, clean, pure water. And we have this fountain, and we say, nah, I don't want that. You know what a cistern is? It's, you dig out a cistern and you cover it up with like player past, clear plaster and it would catch rainwater. And so at best, a cistern is going to be stagnant, still, slightly muddy water. Now, a broken cistern's got a crack. What's going to happen? The water's going to drain out. What's going to be left in a broken cistern? A mud puddle. Slime, damp mud. And we are people who here's this incalculably beautiful, awesome, worthy God. And this is, this is what Romans 1 says. We traded the truth of God for a lie. We worshiped and served the creation. And we said, nah, I'm not interested in that. And we went over to a mud puddle and put our lips to it. And I got a little moisture. This is so good. And we love money. And we love sex and we love material things and we love what other people think of us and we just keep sucking moisture out of our mud puddle and we worship it that's the effrontery is the the insult to god of loving things more than him the insult to god of of abandoning him for these other things that's the evil of Evil, that's the sinfulness of sin. It's the de-godding of God. I'm going to worship a mud puddle, not you. I'm going to worship money, not you. I'm going to worship... And and so that's why I think self-righteousness and pride and things like that are the things that most offend God. Um, is that where you were going, or are you going somewhere else? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's, it's, it's the things that I uh, worship instead of God, the things yeah. that just gradually slip in and all of a sudden become more important. Yeah. And your sermon today just makes, you know, just kind of hits me square about, you know, I've got a choice and I may think I'm going to bear fruit, but if I'm, if I'm not bearing fruit, mm. I need to look at my choices yeah. and where I'm spending my time and where, where's my heart. You know, yeah. the heart's evil. Indeed. In fact, that's another point that got left out of the message. Go to John 3. Um, Luke 3. Luke 3. All sorts of stuff getting cut out. So you think I'd take too long. I'm cutting all sorts of stuff out. Um, no, in, in, John, in Luke 3, and I want to make a very important and clear distinction. Okay? Some, we talked about how the Bible will sometimes present the condition for salvation as faith or belief. The pistis word group. Um, other times the Bible is quite comfortable just saying, repent and be saved. That's Peter's altar call, if you will, at the end of his sermon in Acts 2 is. 
And other times it's repent and believe, or repent and have faith. And people get uncomfortable with it, largely, I think, because we want a, a simple program. We want, you know, four spiritual laws or three spiritual truths or two ways to live. We want it, want it as simplified as possible. And so we get a little offset when our favorite formula isn't repeated verbatim. I, I, you can do a study of um, the apostolic preaching of the cross. You can go through the book of Acts, identify all the gospel presentations, all the preaching in Acts, and try to find out what they have in common. You'll be surprised at just how variegated and how different the gospel is cast. Not that it's fundamental message changes, but but what truths about God are emphasized, what truths about the gospel are emphasized. Um, and it, it, there isn't, like it, you, what's clear is the apostles don't have four spiritual laws that they follow. They don't have a programmatic way of presenting the gospel. And so we got to stretch and, and, and wrestle with this, but one of the reasons people wrestle with it is they tempt to hear um, in the word repentance, works. And then people, plenty of people ask me, is, is demanding repentance from sin um, in the gospel call, is that adding works to the gospel? And I think John the Baptist here makes it really clear the relationship between the two. So um, in Luke 3, pick it up in verse 3, he, John, went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So clearly John the Baptist's message is requiring repentance for sin's forgiveness. Okay? But look at verse 7 and 8. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, what is clear here is the repentance and the fruit it bears are not the same thing. They are distinct Repentance isn't fruit. Repentance isn't works. The fruit are the works. The fruit are the things we do. And so John the Baptist is clearly distinguishing between the inward change in the heart, repentance, and then the change in the course of our actions that consequently apply. So you can't argue, I don't think biblically you can argue, that repentance is works because John the Baptist here clearly separates the two. But... Despite the fact that they're separated and distinct, they are, I think the correct term is co-relative or correlatives. They occur together because once you've changed your, your beliefs and inwardly your thoughts about sin and Jesus, the Bible assumes necessarily actions will follow, which is how we get to the story of the fruitless fig tree. In other words, there's no possibility that this fruitless fig tree really has repented and really has believed, but just hasn't gotten around to bearing any fruit yet. It's a carnal Christian fruit tree. No, the assumption is you're going to bear fruit in keeping with what you are. Go to John, I mean Luke 6. Well, I keep saying John. Jesus uh, makes that same connection between what you are on the inside and what comes out to the outside. And so in, in Luke 6... Um, in fact, this is the sermon that's in our visitor packet, is um, this, this one from uh, Luke 6. Uh, at the end, verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does the bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. What's the assumption? The actions you do and the beliefs and the character on the inside will correspond with certainty. He doesn't allow room for, I'm really an apple tree, but I'm bearing oranges. No. And, and I know, and you've got to be careful here, because I know that 
obviously, yes, Christians do sin. So we're looking at the, 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 the harvest of fruit in your life in, in toto, not in any given instant. We're looking at what type of fruit does this tree generally produce. Um, but there's no room for, largely, and most of the time, it bears thistles and thorns. Every now and then there's something that might look sort of like a fig. There's no room for that. Um, Jesus is assuming that what you think and what you do will be connected. Or as a uh, professor of mine used to say, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. For out of, keep reading Jesus' own statement, um, for each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered on thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The, see, the connection is what's on the inside in your heart is what you're doing. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The words that come out of my mouth started up in my heart. So what we do reveals our nature, and what we do reveals the treasure in our heart. And then verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What we do reveals what we believe. When push comes to shove, what you do, your actions, reveal your belief system. Um, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground. So the whole parable of the fig tree assumes the connection between the response Jesus had just called for in, in Luke 13, repent or perish, and the fruit that such repentance would bear. And Jesus allows for no possibility that the tree had repented, but just hadn't got around to bearing fruit yet. You're going to know them by their fruit. Is this a fruit-bearing fig tree? No. How do you know? It's not bearing any fruit. Is this a repentant person? You stand back, you look at their life, and assuming you have any sort of accurate vantage point, and you look at it, not bearing any fruit. We can be pretty confident. Nope. Ultimately, God makes those judgments. So on the one hand, the Bible will distinguish repentance from the fruit, the results, the works, but yet we'll see there can be no real separation where the one is, the other follows. Um, because I think, at least when I grew up and, and more my background, and I know my background is not everyone else's background, I was dealing with all the people who, because they prayed a prayer, because they asked Jesus into their heart, and nothing more. No fruit, no marks of new life. We're confident they're headed to hell. And that's where I was coming from. No fruit in my life. Well, no, there's plenty of fruit, just thorns and thistles. Drunkenness fruit, and immorality fruit, and rebellion to parents fruit, and pride fruit, and debauchery fruit. There's a lot of that fruit. Um, but I could give you an articulate, clear gospel presentation, you know, just like any demon could. And I was counting on the fact that I'd prayed a prayer to save me, and there was no evidence that I had faith. Now, I'm sure people do get saved when they ask Jesus into their heart when, there's, when that's being done with faith and repentance, but I knew tons of people growing up, and a lot of my childhood friends were all in the same camp. We went to a Christian school, and we'd gone out and done our own things. And so I, I deal far more common with the people who have a false confidence based on some decision they made 20 years ago and not by the fruit their life is bearing. 
and, and you want to know what you believe in, just look at what you're doing, look at what you're spending your money, look at what you value, look at the fruit your life is currently bearing, stand back, take a look at this as a whole, and determine what type of tree you are. That's the simplest way to figure out what you are, not to try to go back and psychoanalyze, did you really, really mean it 15 years ago when you prayed some prayer? If you, if you got saved 15 years ago, God gave you a new heart, and his seed abides in you. And you cannot continue in sin because his seed abides in you. So First John says, you don't need to go back and psychoanalyze some decision 15 years ago. Just look at the fruit your life's bearing. It's, it's, as, it's as simple as that. And, um, and if you're having a hard time with that, ask people who know you, because maybe you are going to be hypercritical. But that's the New Testament assumption, is you, you tell the tree by its fruit. So Jesus can tell his disciples, you know, false prophets will arise, but don't worry, you'll recognize them by their fruit. You know? Okay, we got three minutes. Any last-minute question on this, or do I let you guys out early? Going once, going twice. You can get out early. All right. Please pray for me and Pastor Daniel as we head down to Appanoose this week. Thank you. God bless.